Good morning. Um, welcome to Reefer Madness, taking the insanity, uh, Reefer Madness Revisited, uh, taking the insanity out of medical cannabinoids. Um, uh, Michael Shatman and, whoa, I've been, um, uh, I uh, teach at Tufts University School of Medicine, but I also am a researcher and have done medical marijuana research for a number of years and um, written review papers, and um, my other jobs are the Director of Research and Network Development of Boston Pain Care, um, just outside Boston, and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pain Research. But I did spend 32 years in the trenches seeing patients, and this is my 12th pain week, and I've spoken about cannabinoids, but my lectures are always updated to let you all know what's going on today, because what was going on Last year is not the same as what's going on this year. Um, uh, my disclosure, um, I do actually work as a consultant and contract with Cleo, and I've been a uh, veteran of 31 Dead and Dead and Company <laughs> concerts. Um, however, however, if you're expecting a real pro-marijuana, medical marijuana talk from me, you may want to just get up and leave because I'm gonna talk about the data and then the applications to your practice, so hopefully this will all inform your practices, particularly those of you who are authorizing medical cannabinoids or even in non-medical marijuana states are aware of patients using marijuana for pain management. So the learning objectives are describing the political issues uh, surrounding the legalization of medical marijuana. Um, the legal and regulatory issues are important to me because I teach in pain research education and policy in public health at Tufts. Um, recognizing the obstacles to conducting really good medical marijuana research in the United States, and also, most importantly, how to uh, modify your medical marijuana authorization patterns based on legal realities and empirical data. And again, sorry I'm a researcher these days, but the data, is, data are real important. So in order to start, what the hell is medical marijuana? When I was growing up, there wasn't medical marijuana. Nothing, no, no. Although as I'll discuss, the marijuana of my youth was probably more medical than what's out there now. But, so there's a lot of questions we've got to ask. Um, you know, it has a lengthy history in the United States, goes back to 1996 when California uh, passed the Compassionate Care Act, really to deal with um, AIDS wasting and cancer wasting. Um, currently, there are medical marijuana laws in 30 states plus the District of Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's really interesting because I write continuing medical education for those who want to authorize uh, marijuana in various states. And the medical marijuana laws, again, it's, they vary from state to state, and they are incredibly heterogeneous, you know, varying very widely in terms of, you know, how do you do, uh, how does one obtain it? How much can you have? Can you grow it? Uh, the, you know, dispensaries, the regulations um, are, are all over the map. What are allowable medical conditions? I'll be talking a little bit about that too, and every other possible parameter. So there is no medical you know, marijuana um, law, there's laws and they all vary. And you know, one of the things I want to recommend is that if you are um, going to consider cannabinoids in your state, know the law because you know, it keeps you out of the pokey and things like that. <laughs> and jail stinks because it's hard to get reefer there. Um, I think I've got a dead clicker here. Play with the batteries a little bit, see if that helps it. No, I need, I need to be able to um, advance it.
Sorry about this uh, brief delay here. Uh, they say never go to a, a gunfight uh, with a knife and never show up at a lecture without a clicker or batteries that are working. Um, and then this is the idiocy thing where you keep on doing the same things. <laughs> Just as a show of hands, um, how many of you live in states where there are medical marijuana laws? Wow. When I first started talking on medical cannabinoids at Pain Week about 10 years ago, you know, there are you know, about you know, 15 people in the crowd that um, would come from medical marijuana states. And even when I go down for Pain Weekend, in Texas, it's amazing how strong the interest is. Anyone from Colorado? I've got a few here, yeah. I've lectured in Colorado, and it, it, it's not been pretty because they're much more pro. Okay, we're working. We're up. Okay, so what is medical marijuana? In the eyes of the pro-marijuana zealots, we have you know all kinds of zealots in pain medicine, anti-opioid, pro-opioid zealots. In their eyes, everything's medical. In the eyes of the Food and Drug Administration, of course, no marijuana is deemed medical. And perhaps the truth falls somewhere in between. Now, all this goes back to the good old days of Richard Nixon. And did anyone ever think we'd be talking about the good old days of Richard Nixon? <laughs> That's pretty interesting. But you know, the Controlled Substances Act made uh, marijuana a Schedule One drug, meaning that it is a drug with currently uh, no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Well, everyone's aware of the potential for abuse, but this notion of you know there not being any medical use is um, you know a little bit ridiculous, and we'll talk about that. But federally, keep in mind it remains illegal, and that has its implications. So question, is it legal or is it illegal? Should it be legal? Is it safe? Is there any evidence basis for efficacy? If it's sold in a dispensary, should it therefore be considered medical? If it's medical, can it be abused? So let's complicate things even more, because I'm going to complicate things, and I'm going to hopefully bring everything back to reality. What constitutes recreational marijuana? How many live in recreational marijuana state? OK, so obviously a smaller number. Um, again, to the FDA, legal recreational marijuana doesn't exist. I just a year ago moved from Seattle to Boston. Seattle and Denver are kind of like ground zero. Um, uh, you know, but right now you have a bunch of states that do have legal uh, recreational marijuana. Um, and there's estimations that um, a number of other states are going to very soon uh, legalize recreational marijuana. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I'm sort of an anti-medical marijuana guy, as I'll discuss. But um, recreational marijuana, you know, prohibition has never worked for anything. This is just my humble opinion. And we've lost the war on drugs. And people should not be sitting in jail cells in you know, the deep south for having a few joints in their pocket. Um, but it does make things a little more complicated. Politics also, of course, make things more complicated. Um, so during the Obama administration, going back, Attorney General Eric Holder said the policy is to go after those people who violate both federal and state law. And then there was a policy reversal briefly in 2011, and the Justice Department, the DEA, began to raid dispensaries in selected states, particularly Washington and Oregon, um, blaming them for letting the industry get out of control. And they were out of control. And it was probably a good thing. Um, in 2012, President Obama announced that cannabis use in states in which it's uh, legal is not a priority for the Department of Justice. Can you imagine that? Bigger priorities than marijuana for the Department of Justice? Unbelievable. Um, in, uh, late in 2012, Washington and Colorado passed the first uh, recreational marijuana laws, and uh, Barack Obama, a Democrat, did the Republican thing, and he supported states' rights. So this is all very curious. Um, from a political perspective. A very important act was passed in 2014, and that's the uh, Rohrabacher-Blumenauer uh, Amendment. And what that does, if people are not aware of that, is it defunds the Department of Justice, DEA, um, and their efforts to enforce federal marijuana laws. 
which is kind of a neat thing. Um, this must be renewed every year fiscally to say in effect, and has been every year. The interesting thing is that it's attached to the federal, federal budget bill. And those of you who are into politics know that the federal budget bill is not about the money, it's about the politics. Like, I'm going to shut down the government kind of stuff. And every time a budget agreement cannot be reached, federal protection of state laws is threatened. And accordingly, what can happen is, theoretically at least, the Department of Justice can run wild and just you know, start arresting people and shutting everything down. So those who believe strongly in medical cannabinoid access, we want to not see budget um, uh, problems going on. Now, marijuana contains over 100 constituents uh, called cannabinoids. And the ones that we hear the most about is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. And that's the principal psychoactive constituent of cannabis. And that's a polite way of saying it makes you stoned. So it gets all the press. It gets the good press, and it gets the bad press. Um, recreational marijuana interesting, or not, or not surprisingly, the goal is to maximize the THC. We want to get people you know, as stoned as possible seems to be the goal and always has been the goal. Um, but this also seems to be the goal of medical marijuana as well, which I find interesting. So one of the things you'll see in many dispensaries, and I used to go into them in Washington when I was there, and you know, well, what's that? Well, it's 18% uh, you know, THC. How much is that? It's $10 a gram. What's that? Well, that's 33% THC. Uh, how much is that? Well, that's $15 a gram. And I say, well, why is that? Oh, it's better medicine, man. <laughs> hmm. So uh, uh, the dispensary is mirror the streets, or vice versa. Very importantly is a THC to cannabidiol ratio. I'll be talking at length about cannabidiol here. Um, so there's some research that tells us what kind of ratios we see in medical versus non-medical cannabis. One study looked at over 5,000 samples that were seized in California between 1996 and 2008. During that period of time, the THC levels increased from about 4.5% to almost 12%, and the cannabidiol levels um, uh, decreased from about a quarter percent to pretty much none. So uh, another study showed that the THC to cannabidiol ratio in 2001 was um, 14 to 1 in marijuana in the street. Um, by 2014, it had gone to 80 to 1. And now I'm guessing it's about you know, 500 to 1. And uh, those subsequent studies have been done. And this is because there is a shift from traditional strains to something called Cincinnati which you may have heard of, which really has very little cannabidiol and is loaded with THC. So currently, measurable levels of cannabidiol are rarely found in herbal cannabis. And um, the THC to cannabidiol ratio is not examined in most studies, which is criminal, because that tells you the medical value. And unfortunately, most of the current data are coming from toxicology following seizures. Um, an ability to understand this very important ratio and the impact of breeding the cannabidiol out of cannabis in this country and in North America generally is essential to understanding its health risks. Synthetic THC, I know that uh, Dr. Gourlay, my friend, has talked about this here a little bit. Um, it's been available since 1985 as a Schedule three drug, dronabinol, also known by the brand name of Marinol but also a Schedule II drug, which people think is synthetic THC, but it's a synthetic THC analog that mimics THC. And for whatever reason, their public relations people were not as effective in lobbying the FDA, and that's a Schedule II drug. How many people have used any of the, either of these drugs in their practices, particularly with pain? Okay, small handful. Um, uh, common side effects include drowsiness, unsteady gait, dizziness, inability to focus, thoughts, confusion, mood changes, delusions, and hallucinations. That doesn't sound like medicine to me. And I have tried this on maybe 30 patients over my years in practicing. And um, no one was able to tolerate it because they're getting this hit of pure THC. Um, you know, so the tolerability is dubious. And Issa and colleagues did a review um, back in uh, two, uh, two, 
2014, and they concluded that the utility for chronic pain of the synthetic THC forms that you can get as Schedule II and three drugs is pretty dubious. I'm going to talk a lot, of time, uh, a lot here about the safety issues associated with marijuana. And some of these data are going to shock you, but there's a reference under everything I say. You can look up the article. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay? One thing that we do know is that the numerous safety issues associated with marijuana are thought to be due to the THC, and more THC means more risks. What are we doing? We're increasing THC levels now, which makes it a progressively more risky drug. Can we assume that as the THC levels continue to drive, that, uh, uh, continue to rise, that the safety risks are also going to um, rise? And I think the answer is, is a pretty clear yes. Unfortunately, smoking remains the most common route of administration. And um, how often do we want our patients smoking anything? Okay. Um, a recent review just published um, found that the pulmonary effects um, are even worse than we'd originally thought. And they've come up with a term, marijuana lung, that the pulmonologists talk about. Um, we've known for many, many years that the tars from smoked marijuana contain more carcinogens than do those from tobacco smoke. So all these people out there um, say, oh, no, no, it's natural. Well, tobacco's natural, too. And you know, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be carcinogenic. Um, insufficient data at this point on vaporization, um, although Laughlin and Earlywine did a really nice review, uh, concluded that preliminary findings do support the idea that vaporization is an improvement over smoking in terms of safety. Um, so what do you know about marijuana? Um, a couple of good studies show that it increases the rate of acute myocardial infarction and cardiovascular mortality. It doubles the rate of myocardial infarction in the general population. Um, additionally, uh, it predicts heart failure and cerebrovascular accidents, whether recreational or medical. Uh, it's associated with higher rates of acute ischemic stroke. Um, increased duration of marijuana use is associated with increased risk of death due to hypertension. Sexual functioning, uh, we've known for quite a while that THC impairs gonadal functioning by blocking gonadotropin-releasing hormone release. Um, it is immunosuppressive. So people say, oh, good for cancer. Well, uh, not, not, maybe not so much it does reduce T cell activation. And this is very recent uh, literature, um, EPUB ahead of print. Um, then there's cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Are people familiar with that? Have they seen that in their practices? It's getting a lot of press now. So it's characterized by a syndrome of cyclic vomiting, abdominal pain, and compulsive showering in, in many habitual users. And you know the way I look at this, is that the cyclic vomiting and abdominal pain are not good, but you know, the habitual you know, showering is a good thing if they're coming into my office after they vomited all over themselves. <laughs> I like my patients smelling fresh. Um, the symptoms do improve and ultimately will disappear with cessation of utilization. Uh, the prevalence of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome um, was found in the only study looking at the emergency departments, but when Colorado uh, liberalized its marijuana laws, um, it, emergency rooms due to this doubled. More recent data are available too. Um, you know, we know that it can masquerade as an eating disorder. Who's smoking pot? It's a lot of young kids. And um, women show up in emergency departments, and they're throwing up all over. And you know, the emergency doc who's not familiar with this says, what? Oh, you know, this is some kind of bulimia, bulimorexia. And it goes incorrectly diagnosed. Um, we now have 2.75 million cases annually in the United States. That's a lot. That's a lot. And um, very tragically, we're starting to see um, fatal cases being reported. And obviously, if people are you know, uh, vomiting constantly. They get dehydrated. Electrolytes you know, pretty much disappear. So people are dying from this. Um, cannabis use is associated with higher rates of occupational injuries, injury severity, prolonged lost work days among construction workers who are big smokers. This is a fascinating 
um, uh, study to me very recently. Drug driving, um, uh, 96 of these, uh, percent of these cases involve cannabis. And you know, you hear, oh, if you put a patient on an opioid, you know, don't have them drive, and I've had patients who um, you put on opioids and, oh, no, I can't drive, I'm on, I'm on strong pain medication. 96% of drug driving cases involve marijuana. Drug driving continues to increase um, and, with, and it's associated with um, more traffic fatalities. Um, a French study found that one of two drivers in fatal accidents under the influence of um, alcohol were also under the influence of cannabis. High-risk drinking behavior is recently found to be related to medical cannabis utilization. Um, older adults we have to look at too, um, and we'll talk about selecting good patient populations. Cannabis use has been empirically associated with greater physical injury risk and emergency department visits, and a lot more older people are um, smoking these days. And um, in terms of auto accidents, increased likelihood of fatal two-car crashes, just data after data after data. Um, perhaps the use, uh, issue is that users of marijuana, they're not safer, but they perceive that they're more safe. So during my adolescence, I had a buddy named Crazy Dumb Rob. And, you know, Saturday night, you know, some people in the group, never me, I just watch, would partake of marijuana, and, and there was this creek near us. And, you know, uh, Rob was like, oh, I, I, th I think I can jump over this creek. And he'd jump up in the air and he'd land on his face in the rocks. He broke his nose once. And he'd do it repeatedly because he was Superman and he could fly. And I think that that's a fairly good analogy because, you know, we have to be aware of what's safe and what's not safe. And I don't listen, but there's all these studies that have been coming out for years showing that um, adolescents um, uh, who use marijuana are um, engaging in unsafe sexual practices. You know, again, oh, there's no risk. You know, uh, there is risk. This is a big issue. It's getting a lot of press recently. Pregnancy, use of marijuana among pregnant women has increased by 69% between 2009 and 2016. Currently, and this is very current, 22% of pregnant women are using marijuana during their pregnancy. Now, I don't want to be Nancy Reagan here, but just say no when they come in and tell you that. Why? Cannabis use is certainly associated with preterm birth, and the likelihood of stillbirth or miscarriage is 12 times higher among women using marijuana during pregnancy versus those who don't. Addiction, another great myth. Oh, it's not addictive. Well, Meg Haney um, you know, pointed out you know, it's not as severe as opioid or benzodiazepine addiction, but she did some really great work back in 2013 up at the Columbia University where she brought patients or people off the street who were heavy habitual um, uh, marijuana users and um, had them go cold turkey. And they were paid to go cold turkey and stay inpatient. And the films, and I've seen the films a couple of times, of the patients are harrowing. It looks like the DTs. You know, not as bad as a DTs, and no one's dying, but pretty ugly stuff. Um, interestingly, a recent study found that a perceived barrier to quitting marijuana is that patients or, or recreational users who use it heavily are very frightened of severe withdrawal symptoms. So people keep on smoking. It almost sounds like recreational opioids in a way, doesn't it? I know this is bad for me, but if I stop, I'm going to get sick. Okay? When used um, at night uh, for sleep, uh, the withdrawal's impact on sleep is particularly problematic, um, and reduced marijuana use um, is associated with improved sleep quality. Then we have the cognitive safety issues. We've known about chronic marijuana use and its impact on the diminution of the gray matter of the brain for many, many years. Um, and this is a particular concern in the developing brain. You know, people can use medical marijuana at different ages in different states, um, but you know, the brain is developing until about 25, and if you get someone using it heavily, then their brain is going to look like Swiss cheese. Um, there are a lot of executive functioning uh, deficits associated with marijuana use, and people, again, a myth. You know, this is just short-term, you know, not long-term. <laughs> 
um, and this is not the case. Um, so a review is done, and there's something that the authors refer to as residual cannabis effect. And um, from the review and meta-analysis, they found that there are deficits um, long-term, not temporary, but permanent in learning, forgetting retrieval, abstraction executive functioning, attention, motor skills, um, verbal and language skills, too. So again, what I want to do is dispel the myth that this is a, a very safe drug because it's, the research is saying, no, it's not a very safe drug. The mental health risks, uh, they're going to overlap with the cognitive risk data. Uh, most studied issue has been early onset psychosis and recovery from it in marijuana users. Um, marijuana psychosis uh, association was recognized going back to the 1950s, but that was uh, short-term psychotic reactions. Um, high THC cannabis increases the risk of psychosis threefold compared to non-users and fivefold among daily users. Psychosis is not a good thing, and this is um, particularly problematic in patients using the ultra-high THC wax dabs, and I'll be talking about them in a little bit. Um, sticking with psychosis, cannabis use in first episode psychosis is associated with the failure of antipsychotic uh, medications, which are relatively effective, um, but also as well as adherence to antipsychotic medications. And those of you who have worked with patients with, psychosis, with psychotic disorders know that you know, when they get non-adherent with their medications, they end up in the hospital or worse. Um, extended abstinence, uh, abstinence, I'm sorry, from marijuana does not seem to reverse the symptoms in cannabis-dependent schizophrenia. It's a risk factor for violent behavior in early phase psychosis. Uh, cannabis using patients with bipolar disease demonstrate poor treatment adherence. Um, it predicts earlier age of bipolar disorder onset, the heavier the use, the you know, earlier the onset. Um, and continued marijuana use, once you've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, has been associated with higher risk of recurrence and poorer overall functioning. Um, it's also associated with lower remission rates in bipolar disorder and a significant correlation between marijuana use and suicide attempts in bipolar disorder patients has been found, and that's not surprising. Um, and this is a very interesting, very new study cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which I was discussing a few minutes ago, it's associated with more manic episodes because, you know, if a patient has anticonvulsants in his or her system, their bipolar disorder is going to be pretty much controlled, but if they're throwing up constantly, what happens to the medication? Might as well just not take it because you're throwing it up constantly. Um, anxiety, this is a big one. Um, the acute induction of anxiety that's associated with THC cannot be ignored. And um, early studies found marijuana to have an anti-anxiety effect, but recent meta-analysis has concluded that THC's impact on anxiety is not impressive, to say the least. And I'll be talking in a few minutes about the indica versus the sativa strain. So that when the early study was done in 1986, what was out there and the marijuana of my youth was um, the indica, which is kind of relaxing and such, as opposed to now, it's primarily um, uh, very heavily sativa, which is activating, and I'll talk more about that, um, but definitely not good. Um, a recent study found that longitudinally reduction of marijuana use was associated with decreased anxiety. PTSD, and this makes me absolutely crazy. You know, I did residency at a VA hospital, so worked with Vietnam era vets, and PTSD patients are a very tough population and we have lots of PTSD patients. And when they've been in the armed service, they're particularly frightening to me because our tax dollars have trained them to kill, and we don't want to get them more agitated. So it was once thought to be treatable with cannabis. However, chronic marijuana use, whether medical or non-medical, is something that uh, impairs fear extinction. And if you know about PTSD, it's all about the you know, fear. And we need to extinguish that in order to, to get the symptoms under control. This is um, something else that uh, has uh, contradicted urban legend, and that is marijuana use after uh, initiating treatment associated with worse PTSD symptoms, more violent behavior, and alcohol use. So people used to say, oh, you know, you know don't drink, man, because that causes barroom brawls. If you use marijuana, it mellows you out. 
But as the marijuana that's out there, whether recreational or, ma or medical, has transformed, now um, you're seeing more violence associated with marijuana use. Again, indicas, if you can find them, are, may be helpful, may be helpful for PTSD, but the activating sativas are likely to exacerbate it. And again, there are different sources of PTSD, but those who get it from military service and they're agitated and paranoid to begin with, you don't want to make them more agitated and paranoid. It's not a good recipe for success. So this was an interesting study that showed that dispensary employees um, were found to be more likely to recommend an indica or an indica-heavy hybrid for PTSD than a sativa. So these are the pharmacists of today and tomorrow, I guess. But this is actually pretty encouraging, um, the results of this study. So let's get to cannabidiol. And um, contrary to popular belief, THC is not the most relevant cannabinoid for medical application. Cannabidiol was first isolated way before THC, going back to 1934. It was first synthesized in 1967, and first usable form was 1985. But it's been ignored for many, many years. And it was seen as something that could serve to limit the amount of um, THC that a marijuana plant could potentially hold. So what do we try to do? We try to breed it on out. So it's obviously of no interest to recreational users, and tragically not for many medical users who are uninformed. And you as healthcare providers need to inform your patients on this. Um, it was initially described as non-psychotropic, um, but it does uh, produce anxiolysis through increasing serotonergic transmission. It appears to have a mild antidepressant effect with low levels, uh, those with low level of serotonin. Now, this is preclinical research, you know, stuff done on rats. So, you know, you know how we determine what a depressed rat versus a not depressed rat is? Seriously, it's called the forced swim test, where they take the depressed rats and the non depressed, they throw them into the pool, and those who are depressed, they sink and drown, and those who are not depressed will swim for safety, okay? So it's a little crazy, but it's really not um, non-psychotropic, but it's non-euphoriant. But this depression issue is interesting, and you have to watch out because these rats can be sneaky, okay? So this is a picture <laughs> of a rat cheating on a forced uh, swim test, and they will do that, you know? So I, I've only done clinical research, not preclinical, but, you know, Got to be careful with them. <laughs> Safety profile of cannabidiol has been really well established in articles and reviews going back to 1980. A lot of the great Brazilian uh, marijuana scientists, up to McGuire, very recently American Journal of Psychiatry. Um, this is very important. It attenuates the high caused by THC when you can get an 8 to 1 cannabidiol to THC ratio, because there are some people who talk about the entourage effect, like you need some THC. That's never been proven, but if you can find something that's 16 parts, um, or 16, yeah, 16 parts cannabidiol and two parts THC, um, and I've seen it in a couple of dispensaries, and it's usually very, very, very expensive, um, uh, these patients generally report not getting high and getting some very good uh, clinical results. Nora Volko, the director of NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, has written, cannabidiol appears to be a safe drug, which is a very good endorsement. Now, the availability is really tricky. Um, despite its safety profile and the impossibility of abusing it, cannabidiol from whole plant marijuana is still considered a Schedule I drug. So it's very, very benign, but when it comes from whole plant marijuana, then it's still Schedule One, and federally illegal. What's the other source of it? Hemp. And for a long time, you could not grow hemp in this country, and now you can grow hemp. Um, and um, oh, I want to mention, yeah, recently Epidiolex um, was uh, FDA approved um, for pediatric seizure conditions, and that's plant-based um, uh, cannabidiol. Um, so for a long time, cannabidiol has been available in all medical marijuana states, and now it's available everywhere online. They're talking about them selling it at Walmart and, and Target. 
Um, 13 states, mainly in the southeast, Alabama, Mississippi, you know, et cetera, that were not medical marijuana states, had the wisdom to legalize it without medical marijuana legalization. But again, a new law um, allows for cannabidiol from the hemp plant to be cultivated. Um, the hemp plant is in the same genus as is the um, cannabis sativa, but, but it contains, by definition law, less than 0.3% THC content. And I've tried it, and I've been away from marijuana since I was a, you know, a little kid. Um, and, and there's really no high associated with it. So when you get um, something that is really low in THC, below you know, 0.3%, it's not going to show up in your standard you, you know, urine drug testing immunoassay. So now it's commonly used for pain, anxiety, depression, and sleep disorders. And due to the lack of regulation, unfortunately, the cannabidiol products online are often mislabeled regarding the constituents. So I can you know, tell patients to go to a certain really scientific, you know, PharmD-operated um, uh, company that does incredible work, um, and we're going to be doing some research using their products, and that stuff is, you know, 0.0002% THC, or, and won't show up even on pretty much any testing. But a problem with it is that the stuff online is oftentimes, or probably most times, mislabeled regarding the constituents because we have no regulation, no standardization. Now, at this point, because it's been until recently a Schedule One, most of our existing supportive data regarding pain is preclinical research. We do know, without a doubt, that it's anti-inflammatory. Um, it's in humans um, or in arthritis, it's anti-inflammatory and analgesic. Uh, attenuation of early phase inflammation by cannabidiol present, uh, prevents pain and nerve damage in osteoarthritis. It's found to be anti-inflammatory in human cell lines. Uh, relevance for back pain, cannabidiol has anti-inflammatory effect on rat nucleus propulsus cells. That's really exciting in this day of regenerative medicine. Is this going to be an answer? Is this going to be safer than putting epidural steroids into, um, in, in, into discs? Maybe. To me, it's exciting. Um, one of the best studies done ever was done by Sarah Jane Ward and Sean McAllister and colleagues um, where they looked at chemotherapy-related peripheral neuropathy. How many people quit their chemotherapy due to the peripheral neuropathy and other side effects? Okay, many, many, many and they tend not to do well. So it reduces chemotherapy-related peripheral neuropathy without diminishing nervous uh, system function or chemotherapy efficacy. So I was able to get a number of oncologists at the Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle to um, authorize their patients who are getting chemotherapy to use um, transdermal cannabidiol patches. And interestingly, there was lower incidence of, of nausea and much lower incidence and severity of peripheral neuropathy. So this is a really exciting use for it. Very interesting, high-dose cannabidiol appears to be hypnotic and increases sleep, while low-dose cannabidiol has been associated with increased wakefulness. So there seems to be a paradoxical effect that we don't quite understand yet. Um, it's been established as safe when co-administered with fentanyl. Um, it enhances fracture healing. Really neat stuff, and I think it's due to the anti-inflammatory piece of it. Um, the protective effects on lesion-induced uh, lesion intervertebral disc degeneration um, are also real exciting. Again, this may become the regenerative therapy um, of the future. Uh, synergistic with morphine, increasing its efficacy for certain pain conditions. Um, and actual clinical research with real people rather than Mickey Mouse is effective for reducing chronic pain in kidney um, transplant patients. It's a small study, but it's, it's, it's a start. Uh, now, it's been very hard to do marijuana, medical marijuana research in the United States, so we've had some incredibly draconian laws. One big problem is that all federally funded medical marijuana research currently must use low-grade marijuana that's grown at the University of Mississippi for the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And um, a friend of mine, Greg Carter, who's a great medical marijuana scientist at University of Washington, and we've lectured together at 
pain week in the past, he refers to it as Mississippi skunkweed because the quality is just so awful. And there's no regular, it, no one knows how much cannabidiol is in there. It's just kind of a mess. So there are three dose strengths available. A low potency is 1.29%, uh, moderate potency is 3.53%, and high potency is 7% THC. Why is this a problem? Okay, because oils and wax dabs that are available at pretty much most dispensaries in states that allow them have THC contents as high as 90%. And these are now being regularly used by 36.5% of cannabis users and used by about a third of medical users. So we're doing research on marijuana at 7%, but what's being used is 90% pretty hard to extrapolate there and, and, and draw conclusions. It's apples and oranges. And this is why we don't know a whole lot about pain and marijuana. Um, as I pointed out, medical marijuana sold in dispensaries is higher in THC than that sold on the street. And this is why, you know, in some states, dispensaries are so crazy because everyone wants to go get a dispensary card so they can go in and, and get these really strong marijuanas and the wax dabs, et cetera. So let's put this into context, okay? And um, during my misguided youth, marijuana would have one and a half, two percent THC, and now you're talking about up to 90%. So let's say this was a big glass of light beer at three and a half percent alcohol, and I, and I just drank it down. Would I be able to finish this lecture? Yeah, probably. But what if this were Everclear grain alcohol. <laughs> and I chugged it down. Would I be able to finish the lecture? I'd, I'd die, probably. <laughs> L literally. I mean, that, that, this is a one big-ass shot glass. <laughs> if I were able to finish a lecture, I'd finish it by rolling around on the floor. You know, I'd, I, I, I'd, I'd be a mess. That's the difference between the marijuana of my youth and the stuff that's out there now and the stuff that we use as kids we didn't have to take very seriously, but what's out there now is real serious. Um, a recent break, breakthrough, uh, one uh, investigator, Barth Wellesley at, at uh, University of California, San Diego Medical School, um, convinced NIDA to give them 13.4%, which at least is beginning to approximate, and that's a study that, um, for pain uh, that's currently being uh, conducted. Edibles, let me rail on edibles for a minute, okay? The THC dosing in edibles has been described by toxicologists as insane, okay? Edibles are infused with almost pure THC, and this is different. Anyone ever go to a brownie party when they were a kid, like high school and college? Oh, God, God, God. One, okay, there's two of us in the room. And, and, and what were the problems? You know, we're using that 1.5% pot and make brownies, and you saute it to release the THC, and may or may not be true, who the hell knows. And what would happen? You'd eat that brownie, feel nothing, eat another brownie, eat another brownie, eat another brownie, and like an hour later, all of a sudden it's like, whoa! <laughs> so this is the problem here, okay? It typically take 30 to 90 minutes, which is a big range to take effect. They reach their peak in two to three hours, and they can last for four to 12 hours sitting in the gut, unlike smoked or vaporized marijuana. So it's really a problem. You know, the positive thing about, you know, uh, vaporization um, or smoking, I guess, um, is that it allows for titration um, uh, because you get that immediate effect. And edibles give you a delayed effect and you end up overdoing it in many cases. Also, the prepackaged uh, edible marijuana products are generally mislabeled in terms of their constituents. So you don't know what you're getting. Again, more regulation is, is needed here. Um, so this inability to titrate effectively has led to increases in emergency room uh, visits uh, due to THC intoxication and unfortunately has also led to multiple deaths. My big problem with medical marijuana research and the whole deal is investigator bias and, you know, Medical marijuana is not a science, and I'm a scientist, and it's a religion, unfortunately. So there's Bob Marley, the Rastafarian, and marijuana is big in the culture. But you know, uh, there's one well-known um, marijuana uh, researcher, and it's bizarre that using 9.5% uh, 
THC, he never finds any adverse events in any of his patients, any of the subjects. And that's not consistent um, with what we see in America. So the important thing to understand is that most medical marijuana advocates, including a number of physicians, um, do not let the data get in the way of their opinions. And try doing this. I finally dropped off of Twitter because it's just like helter-skelter. But I post articles about safety, you know, new articles. You know, 2018, I'd, I'd post the article on, on Twitter. And I'd get hate, hate tweets, I guess. Um, you know, two, three in the morning, whatever. Um, but, you know, about that I must be in bed with the uh, opioid industry and this and that, and you're making these studies up. And, you know, uh, people maybe with high school education and saying you're misinterpreting the data. Like, really? <laughs> and I'd be real snide and say, gosh, maybe you should be the editor-in-chief of the journal of pain research rather than me because I keep on screwing up the data interpretation. So, um, you know, get off of Twitter. Um, so what do we know from the good research that's been done in regard to pain? Is it effective for chronic pain? And that depends on the properties of the marijuana being used and one's definition of what is effective. Okay? So I spent 16 years running uh, an interdisciplinary chronic pain management program in Pennsylvania. And we want to get people functional. We want to get them lower on their opioids. We want to get them back to work. And... Um, Functional medicine, it seems to make sense. Enhances quality of life. And I have some questions about strong marijuana enhancing patients' quality of life. Now, High Times Magazine, four years ago, had its first medical marijuana gold cup in Seattle. And guess who was asked to, you know, do the, ask the doctor and part and, and give a, a lecture to 1,000 people? Yeah, lucky me. Okay? And I go there, and there's about 1,000 people in the, in the auditorium, and about 500 of them are you know, clearly um, physically uh, impaired, you know, a lot of canes, walkers, wheelchairs, and the other half were 20 to 25, <laughs> generally long, greasy hair, a lot of piercings, and a lot of ink. And they seem to walk around fine. So I gave a talk about you know, how cannabidiol is a more relevant based on the Israeli research, a more relevant constituent than his THC. And this kid, young guy, comes up to me afterwards and he says, you know, I want to thank you for your lecture, but you're completely wrong. Because I have chronic pain, and, um, you know, when I use low THC, it doesn't do anything for me. And when I use high THC marijuana, I, I, I feel great. It relieves my pain, and, and I lead a fully functional life. It's awesome. I say, first of all, congratulations. You know, everyone's different and you found something that works for you. And I said, it's great that you're completely functional. What do you do for work? And he kind of looks at me with this weird look, and he goes, work, man, I'm too stoned to go to work. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, unfortunately. <laughs> so it does depend on the goals of treatment. You know, and is analgesia sufficient, you know, even if it incapacitates the patient? You know, uh, you know I'd go into a... a uh, dispensary and say, what do you got for pain? And go, oh, this right here. You know, what are the constituents? Constipation, I don't know if it helps with constipation. Uh, never mind. How do you know it works? And I hear this from like, happened at least three times. Dude, I smoked a bowl last night. I was feeling no pain. <laughs> Very frustrating. Also depends on the medical indication. So, for example, opioids. And a lot of this uh, conference is about opioids. Opioids are effective for many types of pain, but not particularly for most types of neuropathic pain. Um, neuropathic pain is the, f the first methodologically robust study was conducted not until 2008, and it defined efficacy. But at 7%, it also resulted in a lot of cognitive deficits. Similar finding, the 2009 study on neuropathic pain due to HIV, a Canadian study using 9.4% THC, found efficacy for neuropathic pain, but no, no, no side effects. Strange. Um, uh, 2013 study, this is very encouraging, showed that low THC, 1.29% marijuana, had some efficacy for neuropathic pain without significant um, cognitive effects. A 2015 study on painful diabetic neuropathy showed that higher dose 
was more effective than lower dose uh, THC marijuana, but again, more cognitive effects. So if we think about, you know, what are we using for neuropathic pain these days, we're using a lot of gabapentinoids. And, you know, you generally have to raise the doses to get the effects, but the side effects, especially the cognitive side effects associated with gabapentinoids, are pretty brutal, especially as you get into higher doses. And it seems that marijuana for neuropathic pain is, is similar. Um, Barth Wilsey also did a study for neuropathic pain on spinal cord injury and disease. And again, higher dose works better than lower dose, but more of these cognitive side effects. So conclusions from marijuana for neuropathic pain. Okay, um, weak evidence um, as effective in terms of analgesia, or in terms of analgesia at higher doses, just weak evidence. The cognitive side effects are dose-related, as are those gabapentin. Um, it never been studied head-to-head -head with gabapentinoids, which I think needs to happen. Um, also, of course, we need to do research on marijuana with significant cannabidiol content as well, and that's where I think the research is going to be moving because that's the kind of stuff that NIDA wants to fund. Um, also, we need, of course, to do research um, on the types of marijuana actually carried in dispensaries, which is 25% or more THC in those states that don't put a limit on it. So my recommendation, I consider it a treatment of last option for those with neuropathic pain. Um, but interestingly, a recent Australian review suggested that cannabidiol may be better, which is pretty exciting. Um, musculoskeletal pain, arthritis, uh, review done, not even out in print yet, evidence is still needed. Um, rheumat uh, rheumatic conditions, no evidence for efficacy, and the experts, Winfried Hauser and coll colleagues in Europe, they recommend against it until more research is available. Fibromyalgia, no empirical evidence for efficacy. Headache, very limited um, evidence for um, headaches, maybe a little bit for certain muscle tension headaches. Cancer pain, everyone says, oh, it's good for cancer. As I pointed out, it um, has a negative impact on the immune system, which is never good for cancer. So it may have potential use based on um, uh, Wilkie's review. They'll point out that human studies are of poor quality, limited size, and very outdated, using a different uh, flavor of marijuana, to say the, lo say the least. Now, this is very relevant here. You know, uh, the most compelling evidence basis for treating marijuana uh, or for marijuana and treating chronic pain was, not is, but was for its opioid-sparing effect. And some studies came out of Colorado um, and showed medical cannabis laws were associated with lower opioid overdose mortality rates. And people said, oh, yeah, you know, and you still have Sanjay Gupta, who makes me really unhappy, um, saying pot, not pills. And I send him notes saying, read the literature, please, because <laughs> that's not true. So you look at the more recent stuff, as the dispensary laws have become tougher, um, this opioid sparing effect is seemingly disappearing. You know, is, it, are cannab you know, is cannabis uh, and THC, is it synergistic with opioids? I believe that's urban myth. Um, it's not associated with lower prescription rates and dosages of Schedule II opioids. In the more recent study, again, 2018, EPUB had a print. Um, this is a real frightening one for me, also 2018. Perioperative opioid use is significantly higher in marijuana users despite lower subjective pain scores. So what they're saying is, oh yeah, my pain isn't as bad, but I want more opioids. And this is the marijuana users. This whole thing about, is it a gateway drug? It's all starting to make me wonder. Uh, marijuana use recently found to be predictive of opioid dependence. Um, this is a study that um, I did with my group at Boston Pain Care, predicted a two-and-a-half-fold increase in the rate of opioid aberrancy. Um, medical marijuana users uh, are more likely to use prescription drugs, including opioids, non-medically. So these are the studies that are coming out now, and I trust the studies coming out now, more so than a couple of studies that came out of Colorado in 2014. What you're smoking, dude, very, very important for you as clinicians who may be authorizing medical marijuana, okay? To talk about medical marijuana as a single entity is ridiculous. We ought to be talking about medical marijuana as plural because they're all so different. Is it an indica or a sativa? These are two separate species, usually in a hybrid form, but they tend to lean one way or another these days 
um, they tend to lean in the sativa di uh, direction. Um, indicas are established as preferable for pain management, but they cause more um, sedation than sativas. Um, sativas are more of a euphoria, but um, more likely also to cause anxiety and paranoid. Do we know which strain is more effective for pain management? Um, we need to do head-to-head -head research on that. And it seems like it should be easy to do, but no one's doing it. I think it's still because funding is very tough. So in terms of the street reputation, indicas, you know, relaxing and calming, you get the body buzz, or we used to call couch lock, like, oh, I can't get up, man, kind of thing. Best suited for night use. Sativas, on the other hand, are uplifting and energetic. They're uh, described as cerebral, spacey, and even hallucinogenic, and probably better suited for day use if you want to be spacey and hallucinating. Um, this is something I put together. Um, uh, very unscientifically or semi-scientifically, you know, when do you use what? And um, high THC, the THC um, to cannabidiol axis is one indica versus sativa is the other axis. I think that high THC medically has no proven value whatsoever. So we want to stay with lower um, THC, higher cannabidiol um, uh, marijuanas or marijuana products, nighttime, you know, when you couch lock may be a relatively good thing, the indica is okay. Um, for patients who tolerate sativas, I've had patients who have been able to function on sativas and be alert. So this is my little pretty drawing, and um, I'm not sure if it's going to make sense, but to me it makes sense. And that's something I use or, or a formula I use when um, counseling patients on this. So we have opioid agreements, and why not have medical marijuana agreements. Well, we do, because Barth Wilsey put one out called the Medical Cannabis Treatment Agreement Providing Information to Chronic Pain Patients via a Written Document. And this is in the Clinical Journal of Pain. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's wonderful. Medical marijuana, we know, is heavily abused. And what Barth and colleagues wrote is physicians would seem to have an obligation to understand and inform their patients on key issues of the evidence-based um, cannabinoid therapeutics. And it covers a lot of important points, such as reduction of diversion, which is a real problem with medical cannabis, particularly to vulnerable children and adolescents. It addresses inappropriate utilization by the authorized patient, you know, such as, no, you don't get up and start doing bong hits at 7 in the morning and do them all day long. Um, that's probably not appropriate medical utilization. Okay? It is addictive. Um, it discusses the risk of marijuana generally and to specific populations. And I discussed earlier the specific risks among um, elderly patients uh, and kids, certainly, with developing brains. Recommends vapor, uh, vaporization over smoking, which is a good thing. It warns against driving a car operating machinery. That's probably a good thing if 96% of all drug driving um, cases involve marijuana. Um, emphasizes a start low, go slow when dosing, particularly with new strains. And this has been the mantra in the days when it was still legal to uh, prescribe opioids, that you want to start low and go slow. Same with medical marijuana. Um, this is one I disagree with. It covers potential benefits of the FDA-approved cannabinoids over smoked marijuana. I think they're talking about the synthetic, you know, the Marinol and Sesmet. Um, so I disagree with that one because I've never seen a patient tolerate it. It recommends withdrawing slowly if a patient wants to stop. And again, this goes back to the literature. Meg Haney's research, it shows that the withdrawals are there. So you don't have people go cold turkey if they're heavy marijuana smokers. Um, addresses the need to evaluate the efficacy and appropriateness of therapy on an ongoing basis. We, we tend not to do that with our patients. We authorize and, and you know, they leave and you don't even ask them about it anymore. This is the typical pattern. Um, it covers not using medical marijuana in public places. This is indeed a problem I hear in Denver and Seattle. I remember walking down the street with my adolescent son and as we're just walking down the street, it's like, Dad, I think I just got a contact tie. So it, it, it's really bad in Seattle. Um, also, this is really important, warns that medical authorization will not protect the patient's job. And I think you can talk to Attorney Boland, um, because I think she's seen some cases of this. It doesn't matter if it's legal in your state, because it's federal legal, federally illegal if you, your workplace has a zero tolerance policy and you test positive for it, you're SOL.
Um, it gives the physician the right to discontinue medical marijuana treatment. This one's a little bit fuzzy simply because once the horse is out of the barn, trying to get the horse back in the barn is really hard. Marijuana is ubiquitous. It's very, very available on the streets. Um, and, you know, we have to keep in mind that respect for patient autonomy is contingent upon the doctrine of informed consent. So we have to inform our patients. This is why different states are um, uh, requiring medical marijuana, continuing medical education to those patients, um, to those docs who are uh, going to be authorizing. So this is exactly what these agreements are providing, and accordingly, they constitute ethical pain medicine practice in my eyes, which is very important, and very important as well is they perhaps you know, uh, protect you as providers as well as the patient. So in conclusion, the future of medical uh, cannabinoids in the United States is uncertain. Um, to assume that marijuana is safe because it's natural is neuromysticism, um, as is assuming that the anecdotal evidence of efficacy provides us with the truth. It's not the truth. Research is going to give us more of the truth. Improving the quality and quantity of medical marijuana research is imperative if it's ever going to become real medicine. I want to see it become medicine because guess what? Our choices for pain management um, at this point are pretty stinky and or going away. Cannabidiol, not THC, promises to be the most medically relevant cannabinoid. Um, uh, if you're going to use medical marijuana in your practice, educate yourself and your patient and do it right there's good continuing education available. Take marijuana as a drug seriously, irrespective of what you may have smoked as a kid. Um, and if you use an opioid agreement, consider using uh, Wilsey's medical cannabis agreement or coming up with your own. Um, you know, practicing cannabinoid medicine is really challenging when we know so little, but better data are hopefully just around the corner. So next year, when I do another update on this, I'll be able to hopefully tell you more of the truth.